Hello, folks. Welcome to The Sacred Speaks. My name is John Price. I'm your host. First, I'd like to get to a couple of housekeeping details, and then we'll jump into the introductions and then get to the episode. So first and foremost, check The Sacred Speaks out at thesacredspeaks.com. New things are happening over there. New websites coming in the next few weeks, hopefully, fingers crossed. And uh, that'll be exciting, so go check that out when you can. Uh, the second thing is check out the Center for the Healing Arts and Sciences. It's a boutique integrative practice that my wife and I created a while back. It's the center, F-O-R-H-A-S.com. Check it out, links below. And then also, as always, the music. Music for the podcast and the series is created by Modern Nations. Check them out at modernnationsmusic.com. And if you hang around to the end of the episode, you will hear a full um, selection of clouds, the theme music for the for the podcast. So now to, uh, to the episode. Uh, first, well, first, gosh, first I want to say... Um, we got back from Esalen, and we had such an amazing group there. I want to thank Esalen for having me out, and of course, every one of you who participated. That was a wonderful group and was extremely exciting. I've kept in touch with many of you, so uh, so thank you. Thanks for being there, and thanks for creating such a wonderful group and connection and experience. Um, I spoke with Esalen, and I'll be going back. Eventually, it's not planned yet, but it was a, it was a wonderful experience. If you've never been to Esalen, I highly recommend it. It's quite uh, expansive. Uh, so the the second is it involves the um, the connection to this podcast. Today I'm interviewing Dr. Christopher Hobbs. I connect with Christopher through Mark Plotkin, and if you'll look back a few episodes, Mark Plotkin and I sat for an interview, and I want to direct you to him really quickly. Um, so Mark Plotkin, check him out at markplotkin.com, link below, of course. And uh, what a what a good fella he, he is. Thanks, Mark, for all your help and support through this process. Um, now, there's something cool because uh, Chris and Mark will be participating in the Telluride Mushroom Festival, and we're going to talk a lot about mushrooms today. So check that out at, uh, let me see that, uh, tellurideinstitute.org, link below. Uh, the festival is August 17th through 21st of this year, and uh, I looked at the website. It looks exciting. If you're in anywhere near there or plan on educating yourself on mushrooms, then uh, then I assume you'll be there. It looks like a wonderful um, festival. Uh, then, so so Mark Plotkin, we got the Telluride, and I want to introduce you to Dr. Hobbs. So Dr. Hobbs, uh, quickly, first of all, I'm on his site right now, and uh, he's got a ton of books. There is this book that we're going to talk about today. Uh, Medicinal Mushrooms, The Essential Guide. This is wonderful, and it's a beautiful book. I, 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 it's gorgeous. So <laughs> check uh, check that out when you can. Chris, thanks for the conversation. Thanks for writing all these amazing books. I mean, he's got stuff from Grow It, Heal It, Women, Women's Herbs, Natural Therapy for Your Liver, Vitamins for Dummies, Herbal Remedies for Dummies, Stress and Natural Healing, Foundations for Health. These are all herbal uh, explorations of herbs that can naturally heal your body, mind, heart, and spirit. Uh, that sounds like a big thing, but it it is, because <laughs> it is. Uh, Chris is an herbalist, an author, a, bot- a botanist, a mycologist, and a research scientist. And for information on Chris, check him out at Christopher Hobbs, C-H-R-I-S-T-O-P-H-E-R-H-O-B-B-S dot com. And his bio, I'll introduce you to him, and then we'll get started. His bio is Dr. Christopher Hobbs, is a fourth-generation internationally renowned herbalist, licensed acupuncturist, author, 
clinician, botanist, mycologist, and research scientist with over 35 years of experience with herbal medicine. Christopher has a doctorate from UC Berkeley in phylogenetics, evolutionary biology, and phytochemistry. He is also a founding member of the American Herbalist Guild. Excuse me. This site is dedicated to all those who love and are inspired by the natural world, especially the green world and the kingdom fungi. So thank you, Chris. What a pleasure. Check out his website. Tons of stuff to look at, uh, and including books, library, classes, uh, and resources. Ton- tons of resources. So I think that does it for today. I'm uh, uh, Other than saying that there's, uh, there's a series coming out soon, and uh, be, be on the lookout for that. That's a, that's been extremely exciting to work on, and a lot of new uh, conversations on the podcast coming up. We're going to be talking about fairy tales, deep diving deeply into ecstatic experience, certainly in antiquity and the Mediterranean region. Region. Um, there are. Let me see who else have I got coming up. Um, I've got uh, in in June. Dennis McKenna and I are going to sit down and chat, and um, uh, and I think I think my I'm, I'm very excited about this book, Ecstatic Experience in the Ancient World. And uh, I'm, I'm talking to one of the editors currently, and we're going to dive into a number of those authors who'd written chapters about uh, about the ecstatic, ecstasy in the um, in antiquity. So for now, let's leave it there. Thank you for being here. Uh, of course, like, subscribe, share, uh, jump online, comment. For anybody who is commenting, I just understand I have a, a full clinical practice, and so sometimes it can be... Uh, um, difficult to comment quickly, but I promise you I'm working to make sure that I'm more present in that way. So thanks for, uh, thanks for being here. Thanks for listening. And, uh, we'll leave it there. Christopher Hobbs, thank you for being here. Uh, this is, I'm very excited to get to talk about this book, we we connected a la Mark Plotkin, who's a, a been a journeyman on this project, and um, and has certainly helped me think through a lot of these ideas. And he just when I was talking to him at some point, he said, "You've got to meet uh, Dr. Christopher Hobbs." And I ordered this book immediately, and then he he connected us. And I, I've been eager because this this gets at something really interesting. You know, at first we were talking about. How my my wife Leela Scott and I are are working on an integrative center in Houston. She's an acupuncturist, and I'm a psychotherapist. And to find out that you've both you know been an herbalist and written about mushrooms, which we're going to talk about later, but herbs in general, you've got a deep history of following the herb, and um, and then also visionary mushrooms that we're certainly going to talk about. But you're an acupuncturist, and like you've you've done a you've come at these questions a lot of different ways, and so I'm I'm very honored and eager to explore this with you today. Thank you for being here. Yeah, my pleasure. Totally, my pleasure, John. Thanks for inviting me. Yeah. So uh, <laughs> let's dive in, man. Um, I I figured we could divide this in a couple of different portions, and as we were referencing earlier, I'd like to talk about medicine and medical systems first and then go through the funnel and go from medical systems into where East and West operate, what Western medicine uh, and theory and even philosophy have been about, and go down into uh, mushrooms and then land on visionary mushrooms. Is that okay with you? Sounds good to me. (laughs) Good. Um, So let's start with the big question. 
what what got you interested in healing in this way? And maybe give a little bit of your of your biography, and then we'll dive into this larger question about medical systems and what you've learned about those over your studies. <clears throat> well, um, I guess uh, started with my ancestors. Definitely, my grandmother and great grandmother were herbalists. They were community herbalists. My grandmother was the community herbalist in Pasadena, California, on Colorado Boulevard. She had a an herb garden there. They had solar, not solar electric panels, obviously, but solar hot water. And she was the go-to um, herbalist in the in the community. And you don't see that much in those days, <clears throat> especially in the LA basin. And then she'd take the red line. She'd go down to the Los Angeles and study with a Chinese herbalist, a Ch probably that did acupuncture as well. Mm -hmm. And then my skip my mother she was an artist and musician but my on my dad's side my dad and grandfather were botanists professors of botany and so i i kind of got into plants and botany through my dad uh and um after that i don't know i i just was i've always been restless so um on one side i i started playing music a lot and piano and guitar and i and I, I knew the music literature really well, even at a young age. Uh, so I, I had to make a choice between being a musician and a, or, or an herbalist or, or, you know, somebody that did something with plants. So I chose plants because I just figured it was a healthier lifestyle and it fit me better because I'm just kind of antsy and, and like being in the woods and walking around in the woods a lot and, and fields and, and, uh, you know, and I didn't want to, I thought musician, being a musician is kind of a hard, hard, uh, it's difficult to, to make a, a living, maybe being a musician mm -hmm. more than, well, of course, being an herbalist wasn't, being an herbalist, that wasn't even a job description when I, when I started. We, no one even knew what an herbalist was, really. And uh, so I just, you know, and, and I've always had an overriding um, interest in what is health and what is disease and what causes disease and and dis-ease and uh, what brings health and that's been an overriding question in my my whole life mm -hmm. i've delved into that both in studying psychology and and using a lot of medicinal mushrooms in the sense of uh, you know we used to when i was living up in oregon we lived near uh, some cow fields where there are a lot of psilocybin mushrooms growing so we got to explore that in the in the 70s, you know, when when people weren't typically taking them. And I think that was a big, uh, big change for me. I at one point I microdosed for nine months straight and uh, and sometimes macrodose. So there was a lot. I think that was a, a part of my a big shift in my spiritual awakening in my early 30s. I had a huge spiritual awakening and started um, joined a religious spiritual group. Um, with Indian lineage and the polarity therapy and went through the polarity therapy training program and learned how to do body work and more, more energy, more looking at more energy in the, in the body and how that affects health. I was fascinated, uh, Randolph Stone, I was fascinated with that and practiced that for quite a few years and um, joined the community. And there's a lot of meditation and, you know, a diet, strict diet and so forth. So I just, you know, after after my big spiritual awakening, then I just thought, you know, I, I want to be a healer. I want to, this is my life work. And I, because, and then you can add the plants to that. And 
and so herbalist, I guess. And and uh, I didn't, I wasn't naturally drawn to to uh, more strict and and uh, say what's the right word, um, you know, modern medicine mm-hmm. uh, that 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 was inside a lot. I, I just thought, well, medicine should be should be connected to the earth. It could it should be something that we can do. Uh, every day and not 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 sequestered in in hospitals and and clinics and and uh, where where a certain privileged class can administer medicine and healing. I, I never really liked that idea too much and and um, <clears throat> I thought that and and I'm still that's the central one of the central themes in my work is what is medicine. That's the central question that I ask: Is what is medicine? And and uh, I'm starting to do uh, podcasts and and uh, reels with, with the question or, or with the statement: mm. Create medicine. So uh, I've, I've been interested in broadening out the definition of medicine rather than pills that we might take or going into the clinic and getting a procedure. And uh, and I just think I just think that we we need as a culture and a society to broaden out what is medicine and what is healing, and it's it's often so well so in our culture especially uh, in the United States it's kind of defined by by fi- financial concerns, and I, and dare I even say greed, and of course Patch Adams was was onto that long mm-hmm. ago. Mm-hmm. Um, medicine should be free. But medicine should be free because we should create medicine. We all should create medicine every day. And that's that's what's going to sustain and create health in our life. And by that, I mean, uh, you know, stop taking time to stop and, and smell a rose and look at a flower uh, deeply on our walk or uh, and, and smell deeply and or, or have a have oatmeal frequently in our diet or because because it's so simple and so incredibly healing and helpful. And uh, and so many other things. Just uh, meditation, of course, is a huge one for me because it's just an opportunity to sit quietly, and without. And I don't, you know, meditation. I think there's so many methods and and, and different um, books on meditation, but it's so simple. You just sit down in a space, and and you just, uh, you know, basically look inside and and see what's going on in there. And I used to ask my patients in the early days. Uh, you know, they'd come in and they'd they have this long list of, of ailments and symptoms, headache and digestive problems and skin rashes and and I, I'm depressed and I don't have any energy. And I just, you know, I'd say, well, you ever take time just to sit down and and just uh, take take a, some moments of quiet time and, and just see, does it feel good in there? What does it feel like inside? And we're so outward all the time that mm-hmm. we don't take the opportunity just to sit and say, you know what's going what's going on in there Does let me it feel pause good? you real quick let me because yeah, go I, I got a question i gotta i gotta go back to two things okay uh, two two little threads i want to follow up on the first is that what i know what sends I, I i at least can imagine what sends people into a field of cow shit in kind of <laughs> today i understand the the kind of ethos that's the worldview that's around this behavior. You know, we have a lot that's happening about psychedelics and certainly psilocybin. But in the 70s, right. what 
what was happening to a 17 year old guy who wants to go out and look at mushrooms? What were you searching? What were you, what were you searching for or imagining you were going to find? Well, I just loved being outdoors in the woods and I realized that there was healing medicine in being in wild nature and especially in old growth forests and, and elk, elk pastures where there is elk shit around and, and, and then I, I, it's even I better to, elk shit. It's better than yeah. cow shit, man. <laughs> That's more, more, a little more wild. Wild. Yeah. <laughs> a few less chemicals, a few less chemicals probably. Yes. And, and, and I think another big defining moment it was, and I'll have to, to credit Paul Stamets. And that is in 1977, I, I was in, you know, I was big into herbs and collecting books already and teaching and, and leading herb walks, but but mushrooms hadn't hit me yet. So uh, a friend of mine, a naturopathic doctor said, oh, well, there's a, a mushroom conference happening up on Orcas Island. Do you want to go? And I said, well, yeah, sure. Why not? Because I saw mushrooms out in the woods when I was looking for plants and herbs. So I went up there and sure enough, it was Paul Stam- one of Paul Stamets's first um, work uh, conferences that he, that he uh, coordinated and pulled people together. And and Dr. Smith was there, one of the leading um, mycologists of the time that wrote a lot of field guides, the, about the only field guides available. Uh, Gaston Guzman, who was the world's leading mm-hmm. expert in psilocybin mushrooms, and a number of other mushroom people. And, and once I got there, it was out, outside, you know, conference in Orcas Island, beautiful place. And then I started going on some mushroom walks, and, and that was it. I was done. I was finished. I was I was like, you know, mushrooms, yes. And, uh, and you know, and these are my people too. I, I just realized that the herbalists have always been my people and, and it's always been about community. It's always been about community. All the herbalists are such great characters and, and rebels and so yeah. fascinating and intellectual and health conscious. And th- th- that became my tribe and my family. And, and that's what's really been the most important aspect of of herbalism, I think even today, and the circle keeps widening. And the same with mushrooms. Mushroom people are really special people, uh, quirky and and uh, you know intellectually curious, and and uh, also want to connect with the earth and and its incredible uh, offerings. And so I just realized these are my people too, the mushroom people, and and mm-hmm. so I, I just went went for it full on and. And have been till this day, um, but but I think that was it. And I I was up in Oregon and psilocybin mushrooms. A friend of mine showed me and said, "Well, you know, these will make you these will change your consciousness." But by then, I had already taken LSD and and um, and uh, peyote, so I, I wasn't I, I was an early early experimenter. My dad was a professor, and we smoked pot together way, way back when my brother and I and my dad smoked pot for the first time, way, way back when, when I was very young and, uh, well, old enough, but, <laughs> but, uh, but fairly young. And, and so I, you know, I was of that ilk in that time and just that time and that place. And, and then I heard, heard the Beatles, uh, you know, John Lennon, Strawberry Fields mm-hmm. Forever and Country Joe whispering LSD in the background of one of his songs. And I lived in LA and, and I grew up in Pomona. And, and I just thought, you know, I'm, I'm going up to San Francisco. This is where I, I want to go. And so I just went up there and 
is part of the whole scene, Grateful Dead and everything. So I guess what that's where it started. What year did you go up there? Uh, 69. Well, yeah. And then you ended up getting a degree at Berkeley. <laughs> Eventually, yes. Uh, yeah. Well, I, I've been a lifelong learner. I've been in more colleges than you can imagine. <laughs> I mean, I, wherever I moved, I was very antsy when younger, but wherever I moved, I, the first thing I did is enroll in, in a college and start taking classes, whether it was psychology or I was an art history major. I was, you know, I was a literature major, psychology major, whatever. So I, I've just been a lifelong learner. But eventually, I just once I got my acupuncture license and became a practitioner, I, I just thought I want to go deeper. I want more chemistry. I want pharmacology. I want biology. I want to know how the cell works. And so then I did a, ten pretty stringent years of science training, and ending up at at Berkeley with a um, PhD in integrative biology, which mm -hmm. really integrates uh, genetics, <clears throat> um, ecology, conservation, botany, uh, evolutionary biology, and a lot of chemistry. And, and uh, I worked in a chemistry lab uh, analyzing plant uh, chemicals and, and relating that to uh, genetics and, and lineage. What was your so, dissertation on? Uh, my dissertation, well, I had, it was a three-part one, but, but basically the genus Artemisia, which is one of the most important medicinal genera of all. So I looked deeply into Artemisia and I did, I sequenced a lot of, um, a lot of uh, gene sequences and, and compared those together and built a big lineage, uh, a big um, phylogeny, showing how they were related to each other. And there are many, many different species of Artemisia over over 500, 600, depending on the system you're using. Uh, and then I, I um, uh, analyzed all the essential oils of all those plants too, which was really fun uh, because Artemisia, like mugwort and wormwood, some of those other well-known Artemisias, have, they all have scent. So that's what draw, drew me to them. They all have scent. So I delved deeply into the, into the volatile components of Artemisia and uh, compared that to the genetics to see whether the chemicals seemed to be more environmentally informed or whether it was genetically determined. And, and so I, I worked on that and then I did some ethnobotany of, uh, of Artemisia as well. So that was, but you know, it's pretty broad. Yeah. It's pretty broad at Cal. At Cal, it's like your, your imagination is the guide, not, not the curriculums as much, you know, that's why I, you know, I was I started out at UC Davis, and 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 I just found it too. Um, I don't know what you would want to call it, but rather rather regimented. Okay, you got to stick to this program. Your major professor determines your course of study and so forth. And at Cal, it's like you know, it just op opens it up to whatever wherever your imagination can go, and and that's what I really enjoyed. Though you do have to take the the core courses, of course, but evolutionary biology and so forth but it was just you know after all that science training people asked me well what did you get out of it or what did you learn after 10 years straight of, of hard science training and I just said I know nothing I, I that's what I learned I don't know anything I mean it's so miraculous it's so it's so amazing how inner interconnected everything is and also so that's was one of the biggest things is just that it's so interconnected. It's such a web that we. Could, it's isolating one um, plant or one uh, system 
it's very limiting. So, so, you know, the more you open, open up your mind yeah. and you don't have notions, you don't say, this is how it is. This is how it works. No, you've never, people say, well, what's your opinion on this? And well, right now, um, this is, you know, this is my hypothesis right now, but it could change tomorrow. Well, it, this is important to say that the more you expose yourself to different areas of knowledge or different disciplines, the more humble you become because you realize that there right. are many different, and that therein gets a problem with fundamentalism, for example, when you say, well, this is the world and this is how it exists. And then I assert this ideology as absolute fact everywhere I go. And I, I do think that humility is a is a is a is a good byproduct of um, subjecting yourself consistently to learning curves, which inherently make you feel very small. That's right. You stand in awe of, yeah. of this this incredible universe, and and even a local system, you know, biological system like walking through the forest. You're in awe because the more that you know the more that you, you you know that that how complex it is how beautiful it is how intelligent it is you know i talked to the guy once who's a biologist and he studied flea reproductive systems <laughs> and he could he also studied uh Corbin, he, he uh, the uh, idol and the icon. He was interested in French uh, religion, <laughs> mysticism, right. and uh, Persian mysticism, and uh, he he was more religious than many people I've ever known. He could he could totally. You said earlier awe, and I think that if we are going to study religion, we have to include the idea of awe within it and ask ourselves when and where we do experience awe. And right. the academy or, or seeking knowledge, the quest, is of course one of those mythic landscapes wherein we will be challenged and stretched and encounter new experiences and new modes of existence. And then we behave as humans behave, and that expands us and broadens us and contextualizes who we are and envision ourselves to be within a much more expansive cosmos. And, and so I'm with you. It's it's. I wonder sometimes when people forget how religious science is. It it it, it essentially brings on religious language, and uh, and and I, I think we forget that a lot because we we think that science eradicates religion, and I think in so many ways it creates the attitude that religions have been in relationship with since the dawn of religion well you can certainly get to a mystical state yeah uh by delving deeply into the natural world and and looking at it so closely and its interactions and complexity you you, you definitely because it's it's you know ego it's ego dissolution yeah in a way when you really go deeply into it what what sent you into the forest it seems that was a pretty holy place for you since you were very very young yeah, that's a sacred place for sure. And uh, for me, I don't know. It's just, you know, it's as simple as, well, of course, my dad started out uh, showing me trees and botany, but I was interested in it right from the beginning. And we'd be driving around and I'd say, what, what's the name of that tree? What's the name of that tree? And he, he knew them all. So he could tell me, well, that's a spruce, that's a deodar cedar or whatever. And, and 
but I was always interested in trees. And I think it's just really, I have to go back to, it's, an, it's just a spiritual energetic um, feeling that I get when I am in the forest. I, it's just a, it's a calmness, it's a peacefulness, it's a expansion. Uh, the, the, of course, the, if you want to get mechanistic about it, the, tree, the, the trees, the conifers especially, are emitting tons and tons of chemicals out into the air, uh, terpenes, volatile terpenes. So they're exuding all of these compounds. And uh, I was probably breathing them in. I've always been very smell-oriented. From the very young age, I'd smell every flower. I'd crush every plant and smell it. And and find out which ones were aromatic and so forth. That's been a characteristic my entire life, and I still do that constantly. If I walk down the street, I'm smelling everything. So I think it's I think it's just a you know sensual feast being in the forest. But the stillness and and the spiritual aspect of the forest as a as a healer. And now we're now you read about forest therapy. Of yes. But, but they call it true. forest walking, you know, that, it, that we have to prescribe this stuff to people because of our world. Well, yeah. Can you imagine how many millions of people live in New York City and never right. go to a forest? It That's is one, one issue we're, we're having as humans is disconnected from, from the natural world. How do you make sense of, if we could borrow from your scientific biology, you know, worldview for a second, how do you understand language like spiritual and energetic related? I mean, you said it a second ago where you said, if you want to be mechanistic, speak to that for a second, your biological upbringing, acupuncture, different interpretive frameworks. How does that make sense to you? Spirituality and well, science. I'm, I feel I was fortunate because my mom was not a scientist by any means. She was an artist. Uh, a humorist, an artist, and a musician trained as a as a, uh, a concert pianist by her mother, who was a concert pianist. So uh, I had that side strongly, uh, a love of music and art. And then on the other side, my dad and his dad were were scientists. So so I I think that's why both sides. I feel like both sides of the, of myself are developed to a certain degree so that I appreciate both sides. And even though I went through that 10 years of science training, I still consider, you know, I'm in touch with the energetic and the spiritual side of plant healing. I don't just, I don't just look at the chemicals, though I love looking at the chemicals and saying, uh, you know, berberine is an amazing compound that plants produce, but I look at the chemical constituents in a way as energetic principles, as that, that do have some some uh, measure of of um, energetics or you know energetic healing if you want to say that and um, and like berberine has an energetic healing of uh, for um, inflammation and infection and and so um, I, I just think both of both sides are there definitely and they they and there is a very strong energetic component to healing. I think, I think everyone understands that at some level, um, that it's not just the, the pills and the chemicals that are doing the healing. And, and even, in the, even in the strict medical sense, in a clinic, in a, in a sterile medical clinic, 
there's still are cues in there that are going on. Um, the tone of voice of the of the doctor maybe, or the or um, just any caring uh, touch or mm -hmm. or expression, something like that has has, has powerful healing properties. Uh, and the fact that he has he or she has a has a white coat on and a stethoscope or whatever and a certain position and and a tremendous amount of training, we put trust in them. But but that energetic part appealing has to be there and uh but when it gets too mechanistic and too profit oriented then people start moving towards herbalists and and acupuncturists because that's that's over on the other side they they tend to be more energetic and more um less evidence-based in a way and, and modern medicine is on the other side you know so so many people i think mix and match now uh, herbalists and and uh, and medical professionals, which is mm -hmm. is the right thing to do, I think. In psychotherapy, we talk about. It, it, I remember when I was learning all the different theoretical orientations. What they all come down, you know, what they do is like in in general psychology one hundred and one. They say, look, um, this is what you know, cognitive behavioral therapy is. This is Freudian psychoanalysis. This is Bowenian. This is you know, self-object theory, so on and so forth. It's almost like a religious uh, sect. And then, um, and then they say, well, uh, well, you can choose any one of these orientations, but really what the agent of change is, is the relationship. You know, it's the quality of relationship that can be c connected with in a sacred container where you're exposing yourself to somebody, you're allowing the relationship to develop and cultivate and we heal wounds from relationship in a relationship that's that's my orientation that's how i come at healing help me understand how do you approach healing when you think about herbs and even from your acupuncture training what what are you doing or trying to do when you when you're healing well you're right on one side certainly i i i embrace what you're saying in that the relationship is so important, uh, kindness, loving kindness, and and the ability to listen actively, and genuinely care about the other person, without being attached, and 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 uh, also having worked out a lot of your own stuff, so that mm -hmm. you don't you don't get you don't get things coming from them you don't hook into that yeah that kind of stuff and react to it so if you're you're an open vessel. It can go right through, but there there is a sense of deep caring and deep listening, and and loving kindness. That's to me the most powerful part of the healing. But but also the chemicals and and metabolism of the body. There there is that to consider. For instance, diet is. I mean, herbalism is so amazing because it really combines the spiritual aspects of of getting connected more to nature and to the earth. Uh, on one hand, and other, and on the other hand, there have been so much research on on herbal medicine now and herbs um, that show us how they work biochemically, how they work on a cellular level, uh, and and it just continues around the world to be an amazing uh, blossoming of of research and clinical trials on natural medicines, including mushrooms and and herbs. So mm -hmm. so it's both. But for me, mm -hmm. um, diet is, and is so important and health habits are so important. And diet, because we did, you know, 
we're eating throughout the day. We're eating. We're we're putting things in our mouth. So more than herbal medicine, diet diet is is a, is a stronger medicine than herbal medicine simply because we're imbibing so much more of it, and we're and we're more focused on it, and we're more regular with it. So to me, diet is is herbal medicine, and I call it herb herb food medicine, mm-hmm. and and so and mushrooms. And so we have to look very carefully at what we're eating. And, and uh, that's a central theme of my healing uh, work uh, is, is herb, uh, food herbs or herb foods or whatever you want to call it. Um, but, but certainly, and there are a lot of spices, of course, in cooking and, and there's garlic and there's onions and, there's, and, and they all have energetic principles. And in Chinese medicine, I've got two or three books that just basically uh, talks about the energetics of food and and the thera- therapeutic uses of food. So like radishes or 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 mustard greens ha- has a certain effect on the body and on the internal organs and and fruit and and meat and has an energetic. It's either hot or cold or neutral or whatever. And it has a taste, obviously bitter and sweet and sour and acrid. And just just like herbs do. So there's really not a lot of difference between food and herbs. And I include foods in in herbal medicine. Now, when you get into packaged foods and processed, heavily processed foods, that's a different story. Then, you know, we have to talk about corporate food products that are so highly processed and why we're eating those. Why do we and why we put up with it? Why do we put up with it? Why do we, we go into the store? And I, I posted this on Facebook not long ago. There's a there's a 50 foot aisle with <laughs> drinks, you know, yeah. sodas, uh, flavored waters on one side, and and cases of them and cases of cans and plastic all the way down for 50 feet. I took a picture of that and I posted it and I said I was really thirsty. I went into the store and I looked at that aisle of, of drinks and walked down and I was looking at all of them and I, and I just said, I went home and I had a, I got a glass of filtered water out of my tap and I, I took a lemon off of my tree and I squeezed it into the water and I drank it. <laughs> and so well, why a, do we, why do we put up with it? That's well, cause I, I mean, it's comfort and convenience. I think like we, we, this is a massive shadow function. You've, you've actually articulated it really well that, because we don't do that on our own, we rely, somebody else has to do it for us. This happens energetically speaking in family systems. Like what I don't tend to, those around me are going to have to deal with. And so it's a function of distribution. And, you know, it, it goes downstream, so to speak, and, or I guess upstream in this case. But the, I think we make a sacrifice. I was just talking to somebody about this, the kind of Faustian bargain that we tend to have when we trade convenience yes but then what but you know it's so convenient just to fill up a you know a a a flask full of of water at home and add the flavoring i mean i what i do is i i have a bottle of newtson because i love conquered grape juice i have a bottle of organic just conquered grape juice from newtson and i pour just a little bit of that in there I, i pour maybe a few tablespoons in a quart glass jar and fill it up with filter water and shake it. And I love that stuff. And I just drink mm-hmm. that. Or, or I put a lemon in, uh, you know, I've, I've got a lemon tree. I put the lemon in there and squeeze it in. 
and then I take a half teaspoon of of uh, I don't know maybe maybe raw raw organic sugar and just put a little bit of sweetness in there and shake it up or honey mm-hmm. and I drink that all day long and and what's not convenient about that and well, I don't know the one pushback I want to give on that is that most people haven't I mean not that you need extensive knowledge like you have but I think most people feel really intimidated um, by having to do it on their own. I mean, even cooking, you know, you can ask the question of why, do, why we don't cook, you know, again, it's a function of, I think, convenience in, uh, Netflix had a great Michael Pollan series out called cooked. And he, that was one of the questions he asked where he said, uh, ever since the dawn of time, people have asked who's going to do the cooking and we're constantly <laughs> passing the buck. You know, some people like to cook though. Some people really enjoy totally. it. Totally. Well, so let's let's kind of dial in here because I think what is your critique of you said it earlier, I think, modern medicine. What's what's the issue with how we're treating disease and sickness? Well, the, the two main overarching themes in 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 our culture is applies to medicine, and that is hegemony and greed. Those yeah, are those it. are the two overreaching things, and and the fact that uh, I'm just going to be frank uh, that that basically politician and I got this from Russell Brand I'll, I'll admit it, but but because uh, <laughs> I watch him and and listen to some of his podcasts, but you know my he wife does too she's a devotee yeah yeah and and so he brought up and he just nailed it he said politicians are are there. They're basically employees of the corporations, and they're yeah. there to make us feel like we have a choice that we can vote. But at the end of the day, they're all they're all basically employees of the giant corporations. They're all on the tape, and and you can't get elected unless unless you get money from corporations. You can't get elected unless mm-hmm. you're very 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 wealthy, like Bloomberg. And in that case, then how did you get that wealthy in the first place? So, right. and then hegemony you know, is, is, ever, is there, in, especially in medicine. I mean, as an herbalist in the 80s, uh, trying to practice uh, herbal, herbal medicine, I mean, I knew people that were thrown into jail for, for simply offering herbs to, to somebody for, you know, for supporting their cancer process. And, and they were thrown, I know a doctor, an MD, who was thrown into jail for, for offering astragalus to one of his patients, his cancer patients. So, so um, he was put you know, in jail. Yeah, he, he wow. spent he, he spent like a four or five days in jail. Yeah. And, and in the eight, early 80s, it was, you know, they were really it was very difficult to pra- openly practice herbal medicine uh, without with, and, and that you couldn't use the language that you use today. We, we had to be very careful. I don't, have you ever heard of Dr. Christopher? No. Yeah, he was a very well-known herbalist from the. 60s, uh, 50s, 60s, 70s. Uh, he was a teacher of a number of the herbalists in, in my generation. Uh, he was thrown into, he was practicing herbalism, a uh, classic herbal medicine uh, from Europe and other disciplines, but he was thrown into jail numerous times. He was arrested numerous times, prosecuted for simply seeing patients and giving them herbal formulas. It's hard to believe now, but that was in the 1970s. So, so it's, it's hegemony and, and greed drives a lot of, well, food, 
why do we, you know, we have all this corporate food and out there on the shelf that isn't healthy, it isn't helpful, it's not connected to nature in any way, shape or form. And I just read an article in the New York Times this morning that was talking about about regenerative farming. Have you have you mm -hmm. been tuning yes. into that? Yeah. And I mean, can you can you imagine well, and then I read another article a couple of weeks ago that that showed very clearly that the the microorganisms in soil hold more carbon than any other um, you know way of sequestration mm. on the planet. So the microbes in the soil are so important for sequestering carbon dioxide. And when when you rip up, can you imagine the big um, giant corporate farms in Iowa or wherever, where they just plow up hundreds of acres and rip the soil open and, and then spray it with chemicals. I mean, that is really devastating to our planet's ability to regulate the amount of carbon dioxide. That, that's incredible when you think about it. Corporate, so corporate farming, corporate food, corporate medicine goes hand in hand because when we're eating corporate food, uh, every day, and we're we're disconnecting from the natural our our, our mother basically. Yeah. Uh, then we're going to have illness, and as soon as we have illness, then then corporate medicine comes in to to try to suppress the symptoms, but not get at the root of the problems. So medicine should be started really on the farm, and you know. So these are concepts that are just so clear and evident once you start really looking deeply into the way things work and start listening to, to people like Russell Brand, of course, or <laughs> Gabor Mate. Yeah. Gabor yeah. Mate. I'm, I'm, I, I'm, I'm cry when I read, when I hear, when I see some of his videos, I've read all of his books. I'm just in love with a guy and mm -hmm. I want to hug him. You know, he, I, I just think, I just think he is, he's telling the truth. I love well, people that tell the truth. So if you had it your way, how would we structure our healing system? Well, you know, first of all, I don't know. I think we have to tax, we have to tax food. We have to tax food that's, that's causing illness. And, and, and it's clear, clear there, there, have you ever read, um, it's called uh, the China study. Did you ever read the China study? I've heard of it, but I haven't read it. One of the most amazing uh, health books you ever want to read on diet. And he points out very, very clearly, and of course, this is a trend now, but he points out very, very clearly that that um, a, a, whole, a whole foods plant-based diet is going to lead to half the amount of chronic illness. That alone, uh, and even less. And, there, and not only that, but there are decades of good research studies that back it up. There have been, I was surprised at the amount of good uh, science behind the fact that if you have a high, heavily animal-based diet, that the, you know, chronic disease is much more likely to occur throughout one's lifetime. I was, mm -hmm. pretty, I was pretty blown away. There is a newer edition out, uh, and, and I would recommend that to anybody, that book, if you want to find out about, uh, about what we're eating. And, and again, those are, that's herbal medicine. And and we're not doing ourselves any favors. Um, we, we might we might get uh, convenience, but then what are we doing with the the time that we save through the convenience? What are we doing? We're binge watching Netflix. 
Yeah, what I heard, I think I I can't remember where I read this, but I it was some Amazonian tribe that called Westerners, you know, people of the pill. Yeah, you know the, how yeah, how often right. we we turn to these. We don't make lifestyle choices. We make choices that help conveniently uh, address our, our perceived problems, rather than let the perceived problems take us into a different way of living. Well, it's like looking out there again to the pill or to the doctor or to the authority rather than looking in. That's I, I think that's the fundamental case right there. That's the fundamental case to be made. If I were to, if you asked me, well, what are the two things that we can do that could really transform our life and make such a huge difference or, or three things, uh, I'd say number one, uh, definitely meditate, definitely take, or you don't even have to call it meditation. Just take some time every day to sit quietly and just look inside. And, and you, I think I, I know from my own experience that early childhood experiences will come up. You'll, you'll have a feeling of dread or you'll have a feeling of dis-ease or discomfort. And then you just sit with that. Okay, what's that? Wh where is that discomfort coming from? What's going on? And it'll just come. It'll just come in. If you're open and you're quiet and you're present, then the, it'll come in. Your early childhood things will come in. I, I, and you, you can just ask, well, where does that discomfort come from? And, and then just be open for what comes. So that's number one. Number two, increase your fiber because fiber is a, is a marker for vitamins, minerals, phytonutrients, uh, flavonoids, antioxidants. Uh, it's, a, it's a marker for all of the other stuff. It means that the less processed your food is, the more fiber you're going to get. The average American gets 15 grams of fiber a day. The government recommends 25. And and a person with a traditional diet gets 40 or 50 grams, mm. up to 60 grams of fiber per day. So, and, and now there's this new wave of interest in the microbiome and yes. how, the micro, how the complexity of our microbiome is so important for health. And they're uncovering more and more interesting connections with the microbiome. And the number one thing with the microbiome is complexity, diversity. So the more we dumb down our microbiome by eating, uh, by of course antibiotics and chemicals that we might use in our uh, in our diet, but but uh, you know keep not diversifying our diet and not having a lot of fiber. Fiber and prebiotics are what really lead to diversity. And mushrooms, by the way, are have the highest fiber food out there. Mushrooms are the highest fiber food. Next is beans. The whole range of lentils and beans and and legumes, that's the second highest in fiber. So we want, in almost every traditional culture, eats a lot of mushrooms, especially in Asia, of course, daily, daily lion's mane, daily shiitake. Mm -hmm. It's an integral part of the diet. And then, of course, a lot of vegetables. Uh, so, and, and, and also legumes. Legumes are a, a daily part of the diet in so many millions and <clears throat> people in India, China, Asia and so forth. Legumes are an integral part of, of their diet. Uh, and so, so fiber is number two. And number three is just, of course, move your body and, and, uh, and stretch your body. Because 
uh, as we get older, if we're sitting, what happens is, is that the muscles contract. So when we sit and we're inactive, the muscles start contracting. And when they contract, they will produce toxins, uh, mm. you know, they're, because they're, they're under stress. The muscles mm -hmm. are under stress when they're contracted. And when we're sitting, they're going to contract. And so we need to stretch them. You notice a cat, you know, when they get up in the morning, they're, they're just they're stretching out and yawning and mm -hmm. stretching. And, and so that's the third thing is just stretch frequently throughout the day. If you're, you know, you're waiting for your toaster oven to ding off, do, do a, a yoga pose or, or, or touch, your, touch the floor and hold it or do 10 squats or, you know, throughout the day incorporated in your life where you're constantly like stretching and feeling what's going, just like going inside and looking, you're, you know, being aware of what's going on in your psychology and your mental processes. Be aware of what your body feels like too. And stretch. <coughs> and that includes walking. Walking is incredible. <coughs> so those are the three things that you can do to transform your life right now. Take a drink. You get meditation, fiber, and stretching. On this note, can, what's your critique? That what are we what are we to learn from our response to COVID, and what do we get wrong, and what did you think about the vaccine rollout, so on and so forth? Yeah, <laughs> that's a topic of our time, isn't it? Oh man, yeah. Well, first of all, I think, and I did a <clears throat> I did a posting on this on my. Um, I, it was on, uh, I guess I put it on Instagram and my Facebook um, public figure page, Dr. Christopher Hobbs. But my, and my, question, and my question was, are viruses alive? Mm -hmm. So, you know, many of us are afraid of viruses or concerned about viruses, but we don't. Are we looking at what, what's the nature of viruses? What are they here for? What are they doing? Are, are they just, you know... These, these agents out there that are attacking us and harming us, is that all they're, they're here for? And so if you really start delving into the literature about viruses, of course, it's voluminous. But I think the bottom line with viruses is they're, they're, they're per, they're, why they're here is what their place in the web of life is, is balance. They're here to create balance. And, and, uh, did you know that there are probably three trillion viruses in our body? I read three that somewhere. Three trillion yes. viruses in our body. Yeah. Every one of our um, bacterial cells that's in our in our gut and throughout our body and our skin everywhere is is infected with, if you want to put it that way, or at least have viruses inside of them, regulating the bacteria, and. And promoting bacteria that that produce he health and homeostasis, mm -hmm. homeostasis, and and uh, also suppress other bacteria that could be harmful. So a lot of the viruses in our body are, have a regulatory function, an ancient regulatory function, and they're found at every level of biology, of every level in our web of life. You'll find viruses in the ocean, in ocean creatures, under the ice. Every in the atmosphere, uh, in in bacteria, of course, they're called phages, and they have a great regulatory uh, importance in our body. So, and and then that's a that's a very ancient regulatory process. And think about it: 
we create the viruses. That's the, that's what's so fascinating about it is, if you think about it, our cells are producing the viruses, right? So we, actually you could think of it as, who, where are the viruses coming from? We're creating the viruses. That's, that's the big shock. And they're not only that, but they're swapping DNA with us like crazy. They're swapping little pieces of DNA with us <laughs> all the time. And, and so they're basically, that's another way that they regulate. And they're a, a very important source of nucleic acid for, for you know, basically building up DNA uh, and in our, in our body, which is in every single cell of our body that, that has such an important uh, function. So when you look at it in those terms, then you, we can begin to understand their, play, their place and their importance and, and, and not fear them so much. On the other hand, then you start asking the question, well, well, well what about, what about um, Ebola? What about polio? You know, what about some of these viruses that, and then I, in my talk uh, lecture, I, I looked in the, the history of plagues mm-hmm. and, and wow, some of these plagues, wow. I mean, they killed half of the population of Europe. You know, millions and millions and millions of people died with, bact- bacteri- uh, with viral infections and bacterial infections. But, but why, why? What's, what's their, why are all these millions of people dying? And, and if we ask ourselves that, then we could say, we could look at it, we could have the hypothesis that, that at that point in, in our evolution, we needed a big pruning. At, mm-hmm. at that point, mm-hmm. so th- there's an over, there's a bigger picture here. So all I'm saying, I don't have all the answers, but right. uh, but why these giant plagues swept through so many millions of people? But but I I do have a very strong sense that that there is a there is an importance that there is a reason why. Just like wars, just like chaos, there has to be chaos uh, in certain periods of time. Things become stagnant in in uh, and you might say, in cultural evolution uh, periods, there there becomes stagnation, just like in Rome, you might say. And then the hordes come in, and they completely destroy the Roman Empire or fragment it. Uh, why? Because it it's reinvigorating, it's reinvigorating the the, the species and our and the, and the way that we're learning, the way that we're go- growing and expanding as as beings well this was this this theory this idea was um at the root i think of the flood narrative in creation myths you know we see that dynamic where the the population is overwhelmed by a natural act that forever transforms the ways in which we live and these happen to family systems. They happen to individuals in the form of traumas. They happen collectively in the form of natural events, of course. But I, I, from a philosophical lens, we, we say, yeah, there's purpose in a virus that's understandable from a, as we broaden our, our perspective and we see things in the same way that I'm consistently having cells dying, you know, right. even in this moment in my body, and I would never even notice it. There, there, the idea that we might call this other God, that sometimes God just has nothing to do with what happens on the social level uh, in, in, in that fractal that, that happens in me all the time. But the, 
the question then on on a on a medical from a medical perspective, how did we do? Because it seems like we created a massive shit show. Well, as we can see, I mean, I I think many people probably uh, before the pandemic came. I mean, you could look around and say, you know, we're not living in balance. I mean, you go uh -huh. into a giant football field store full of all these processed plastic products, and we know that they're the plastic is building up in the ocean, and 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 now for the first time they've shown plastic microparticles in the bloodstream of humans, and and on and on. You know what we're doing here, and you, for me, I go down to the Bay Area, and I see the the car. They, as far as I can see, there are cars and concrete mm -hmm. and buildings, and and you just have to think we're we're not in balance here. This is not uh, something's going to happen. And sure enough, we, you know, the, the pandemic came. Well, on one level with the pandemic, there, there's this natural selection. You know, mm -hmm. I, I, it worked. One of the first things it did is run through a lot of nursing homes where there were, where there were 80, 80 year olds, 90 year olds, many of which whom were not healthy at all. They didn't, they don't have a healthy lifestyle. They, they aren't encouraged to have a healthy lifestyle, even in nursing homes and where there's medical care. It has nothing to do with health. It's just babysitting them until they die, basically. And <clears throat> I hate to be so blunt, but but uh, so the virus really did, um, you know, kill a lot of elderly people that were that were in nursing homes, and and so there's just and there's natural selection at work here. Evolution. And anybody, I I, I just want to check something real quick because anybody that has a problem with this framework, I want I I invite you to ask yourself what you think nursing homes are, and. You know, I I think I I do really get your point because what we're saying is that look, nature has an intelligence that's beyond our comprehension. That's and right. We've, we've recognized this from time immemorial because the there's one fundamental difference between we and the gods, and that is that the gods are eternal. Therefore, they are forces that will be here well after and well before our individual lives. So human beings have been interacting with these forces for millennia and we've been conceptualizing and narrativizing and understanding what these forces are and trying to contend with them right and yeah like we don't like it and yes tornadoes are going to come and forest fires <laughs> are going to come and uh plagues are going to come and and it seems to me that we need to figure out how we how we listen to the wisdom and I think that's what people aren't wanting to look at, which is, right. it's a little moralistic, but what is this a commentary upon? And and it sounds like you're landing in the camp of, it's a commentary of the fact that we are greedy, uh, convenience-seeking en masse, and that kind of industrialized... And we're self-serving. Yeah, we're, totally, We're focused yes. on the self. We're, I mean, come on, people. You know, you can't wear a mask in a store to protect other people because it's a little uncomfortable putting a mask on. I mean, you know, many people say, well, it's because I don't want to be told what to do. And that's, again, that's that thinking of me. I'm the most important. I'm more important than anything else. Instead of we're all in this together. We're, we, it's all how we all do is important. And when you think about individual health and how we feel psychologically depressed or anxious or whatever, look around us. I mean, it's 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 really 
it's not the health of the individual that it's really the health of the, the family. Uh, and Gabor Mate brings this up many times that, that it's, you know, if, if you look at an individual who has depression and anxiety and, and um, MS and so forth, what is the, you know, you have to look at the health of the family and the dynamic mm -hmm. in the family and, and also in the community, in the wider community and in the wider country. And so, so I, I think our thinking, so that, that's my point now to get back to the pandemic is let's, let's focus on the good that came out of the pandemic and that is still coming out of the pandemic. There's so much good that came out. Yes, there's suffering. It creates suffering, but there's so much, but there's, in new, there's immeasurable suffering just in daily living of, of many, many, most of us, just because uh, ennui, you know, even ennui or whatever, because we're bored or because we're, we're, we're really uh, depressed about what's going on in the world and wars and everything else. And it seems hopeless. And, and so there, there's all that going on, but there's so much good that has come out of this pandemic. For instance, just the fact that we're not going to go out and get on a plane or drive drive 20 miles to get a Haagen-Dazs or, or whatever, you know, at, at night because there's a store open that's got Haagen-Dazs. We've got to start thinking about what uh, personal responsibility here to the planet, to the other people, to the community. I'm not trying to moralize. It's just a basic fact that that we can look around and easily see how out of balance the world is. Well, you've been listening to the wisdom of the forest and the trees for a long time, and so that that's going to be understandable that that's your worldview. And it's a little bit what the native traditions really, I think, are trying to communicate on a lot of levels is like we're the guardians of the things that aren't seen or recognized by collectivity currently. And because of industry, because of overpopulation, because of technology, because of the ways in which we connect, and we're leaving a lot out. We're, we are disconnected from a soulful way of being in the earth. And so, right. and and I think where you're going is that a lot of modern medicine, and this may be too cynical, but modern medicine is a way of treating the consequences of that split. So it it benefits from the split that it creates. Is no, that fair to say? Exactly, exactly okay. right. It's a, it's a whole circle of, of my, my friend always says, well, we should have free, we should have free in health insurance because it's the government that allows, you know, all of these processed foods, uh -huh. it allows companies to put out all, all of this toxic air and, and, and allows, you know, and, and suppresses and holds back electric vehicles, for instance, for green energy. And, and, and allows you know, all these internal combustion engines out there, millions and mm -hmm. millions of them to spew out the contents into the air. They, they're the ones that are, that are you know, not passing regulations or laws in our favor. It's in favor of the corporations oftentimes. So they should give us free health insurance. So, you know, it's, it's all definitely connected very closely. Um, the, the, the food that, that is being promoted out there everywhere we go is like, you, you can't go anywhere on the internet or on TV. I don't watch TV, but the internet, and I used to watch TV now and then, but where they, you know, say at night around dinner time, they show somebody with a, with a dish of something, maybe some meat dish or something, and then pouring this thick cheese on it. And they zoom mm -hmm. in on it and you can see the cheese 
you know, the thick cheese like spreading out over it. And it's supposed to be appetizing, but it, it's just, you know, it gives me the shivers when I look at it. I, I can't even watch it. But well, it's uh, sensory pleasure. It's he- hedonism, and we yeah, we have a sure. culture of hedonism that 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 <clears throat> even I mean to go into visionary mushrooms because I want to point us in that direction. There's something about what uh, Maria uh, Sabina said with. Uh, she said something about to Gordon Watson, something about like you can look at the pretty pictures, uh, but that's not really the healing. And so there, there is something about in our human experience. If we get lost in sensory, pleasureful uh, experiences, we can miss the descent into a deeper uh, reality and essence of our our own existence. And well, sure, that, it's the, that's our it's the shadow. It's the shadow that really is the powerful mover and shaker. You know, it's right. the shadow, yeah. and we want to embrace that. That's the point. Yes, that's Pema Pema Chodron's yes main point. That's her main point. Embrace it. You know, don't run away from the the pain and the fear. Embrace it. Go into it. I, gotta tell, I recommend it, her it, work to people all the time at my own personal experience when my life fell apart i read when things fall apart and it was glorious so if anybody hasn't read that get that powerful powerful i was well, let's, so the only other thing on this topic which i think uh, i'm i'm certainly wondering is your critique of like so there's a big conflict and i'm, I'm assuming you've read a lot of these papers so i'd like to get your opinion on it the the vaccine and its efficacy. I knew you were going to say that. Right. Because, <laughs> you know, look, I'm a psychologist, and there are times when I look at statistics and articles and go, what the, f- I don't fucking, like, so to to connect with people who have the mind that have been reading those articles, I'm curious your thoughts. Well, yeah, the vaccine. I mean, on one hand, I mean, for me, I'm a scientist again, so I'm in the middle. I don't, I don't take one side or the other. I'm in the middle. Good. I see both sides. I mm-hmm. see both sides of the picture. And on one side, you, and, and even herbalists, even, even some herbalists say are, are really, ant, they don't call themselves anti-vaxxers, but they, they're not going to get a vaccine because they say we should be able to use herbs and natural medicine, and we should take care of our health, take care of our immune system, boost our immune system with reishi and, and astragalus and and really get enough, get plenty of sleep so our immune system and manage the stress. Our immune system is strong. We have we have all of these er- beautiful herbs that we can use if we yes. happen to get infected. And I totally agree with them. I'm I'm 100% onto that. On the other hand, the the, the reality is that most people are not there. Most people mm-hmm. are not are not there. They're run, they're they're busy trying to make a living, trying to trying to manage their families and their everything that's going on in their life and in our busy uh, stressful life and and they don't have time to study that and to 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 practice that so so they're and and they're under stress they've got two or three kids maybe and Mm -hmm. and school and and they're in they have problems in school because they can't go to school and they're at home and they're all all these family dynamics creating stress so i understand that that uh, that side of it too, but as far as actually getting the vaccine and looking at what a vaccine is, I mean, it's it's a way of of activating our 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 immune response against a certain pathogen, a specific mm-hmm. pathogen, 
And of course, they've been around for quite a while. It, it was when you when you look at smallpox, um, smallpox was basically uh, the only the only thing that saved us. I mean, smallpox was like millions of people died every 10 years. We'd have a resurgence of smallpox. And they've identified smallpox back in Egyptian times, believe it or not. Wow. They, they, they found a, a mummy with, with smallpox lesions on their mm -hmm. face, pock marks. So smallpox have been around for a long time. And, and every so often it killed millions and millions of people. And it was still around in the 20th century. And it was only, <clears throat> only the, the, the cowpox vaccine, finding out that cowpox was a similar virus, that if you took cowpox, a cow that was infected with the virus cowpox, and inoculated people with it, that they would be have some immunity to smallpox, and and then they finally did a, a you know develop a stronger smallpox vaccine. That's what got rid of it, and and they almost eliminated it on planet planet Earth. It's only a you know and it's just highly. Um, I, we're highly free now of, of smallpox and right. and it killed millions of people every five to ten years so so vaccines aren't inherently evil or, or and what about man mandating it and, and this is a new technology yes it is a new technology but it's been around for 10 15 20 years um, <clears throat> that they've been working on it so uh, I think um, and it does does spike immunity and the research clearly shows that if you have a vaccine, you have two vaccines and a booster, plus you get infected, uh, say with, with Omicron, that you will have the strongest possible um, antibody uh, protection against COVID. However, having said that, we also, if you've been infected, you'll also have a, a very good, probably based on the research I've done, you'll have somewhat stronger um, uh, protection against COVID if you, have an, if you have an infection than you can get from a vaccine. Uh, that's, that you, you can read papers on both sides, but, but overall, I, th I think that it's really true. And it makes sense because we're exposed to the whole virus, not mm -hmm. just the spike protein, certain spike proteins. So, <clears throat> so it's, it's uh, so, I just think that that um, yeah, it's a personal choice, I guess. But but uh, and if you're and it just gets too so mixed up into politics and everything mm -hmm. else, as, as we know. So putting that aside, overall, it's, my bottom line is I, I'm I'm for, for the vaccine because I I feel like it does offer protection for other people uh, and and family members and so forth. And then if you happen to get infected. Of course, follow, you know, try to try to keep a strong immune system. There are many ways to do that uh, and and really manage your stress and so forth and eat a good, healthy diet, which is positive for the our immune response. And um, and so I, I think it's really important to take personal responsibility for our health mm -hmm. and that protects other people. So so that's uh, that's really important as far as I'm concerned. And it's per mm -hmm. Not that we need to, this isn't, uh, this is kind of an uncharted conversation, but I, I, I realize it's, I'm hearing about it so much in my private practice, but also amongst people I'm talking to. So I figure that we're here talking, so I may as well ask you, and you just taught a class on it. So my intuition was correct. The, 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 one of the last questions though, on this subject is what do you, what are your, um, what do you, uh, how do I want to say that? 
What are your thoughts about side effects, negative side effects from vaccines and this narrative around uh, a kind of active agency that's shielding or, or hiding these uh, negative side effects from the general public? Well, the, what, I, what I think about that is that, that um, you today I think we have to trust the science. And, and some people say, can say, well, scientists can be bought off by the corporations. That's true. Uh, some scientists are, are, there's junk science out there. There's some science that's not very good. But at the end of the day, I think that we, who else are we going? I mean, we, we can either believe good science and good scientists that are being published in peer-reviewed journals by their peers uh, that disclose their commercial connections, uh, mm. where they're being, how they're being paid, and, and then other scientists looking, and, and it's open forum. You can read their paper. You can get it on PubMed. PubMed.gov is the world's largest medical database. It's free to search. You can, you can read the papers yourself. You can read the, the abstracts in the papers. It's open to anybody to read. And, and it's experimentation. It's hypothesis. It's the scientific method, which means that they have to get rigorous data. They have to do a rigorous experimentation. They have to have a lot of, of uh, they have to do it over and over and over again and, and make sure that those results are solid. And then they have to publish them in front of their peers. And in mm -hmm. front of all of us, all of us have access to it. On the other hand, is somebody who says, oh, well, I heard uh, and I read on the internet that, that thousands of people are dying of the vaccine and, and that it's causing all these long-term negative effects. Okay, show me the papers, show me the science, show me the rigorous science, show me where it's published and, it's, and the methodology and the experimentation is freely available for anybody to look at. It's open source. Or is it just somebody that came up with that because that's their notion. They have a notion of that. That's their politics. That's their orientation is, is that, you know, there are people out there trying to, trying, to trying to kill people and make big profits in the process. Well, you know, that's happening every day in the food industry, isn't it? Mm -hmm. There are people out there conspiring to, to okay, what what's going to addict the most people? Sugar, fat, and salt combination that's going to that's going to addict the most people. And in the process, there's going to be collateral damage. We know that. I can demonstrate that a hundred times over. So that's going on every day, and we don't talk about and complain about that. But when there's a vaccine, so what I'm saying is, is that that we have to we have to have something to hang our hat on as far as what's real and what isn't. I mean, that's a big topic today, isn't it? Yes. What's true and what's not true? What's truth and what's false truth? Uh, you know, we, we have to look at that, but I, at the end of the day, I'm gonna have to go with science because it's open source. It's people actually doing experiments where you make observations over and over again, and you say, why, why does this happen? And you, 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 do it, you make a hypothesis, it's happening because of this, and you run experiments to try to prove or disprove that over and over again. And then it, when you get results, you publish it to the wider community of scientists all over the world. And they start doing it, the same experiment over and over again to try to disprove it. That's science. You try to disprove it. Is that, which is, is that why which that's is, happening? Which is great. I, I, and I, 
what I think we tend to forget is we tend to look at science with a religious attitude and deify it as opposed to recognize the science as a process. It's a and process. It, its process is trying to eradicate the tendency for unconscious bias and various motivations to affect outcomes of the, the studies. And, and so I get the system. I think it's powerful. But if I'm going to dive down into our... Yes, but it, the last thing I want to say is, is it, is it perfect? No. Right. It's totally. not perfect. It's humans. It's humans. Yes. We're not perfect. But it's the best that we have. That's, that's, my, that's my point. It's an open source. PubMed is free. It's the world's largest medical database. You can search, like, does Hawthorne really help the heart? You can go on to PubMed and, and see what research has been done on actual people. So it's the best that we have. And it's better than somebody's notion that gets passed on from person yeah. to person with no, where's your evidence? There's no evidence. So the, thank you for that, by the way. That was nice to talk about because um, this is one of those things that people don't talk about <laughs> or they just get angry or pissed off or confused or whatever. Just having a, uh, an insightful conversation with it's not charged isn't, uh, isn't common right, right now on this subject. Yeah. I'm right in the middle again. I don't have a charge on it. I, well, and that's a, there's a certain, uh, I think important practice of being in the middle, having a practice of being in the middle, because I have parts of myself that are going to want to go to the extremes. And if I have a, a kind of desire to return to the middle, there's a tension in the opposites that gets uh, connected with. Exactly. So, the Tao. The Tao. The the yes. Middle, the yeah. middle way. The middle way. Well, you're, I've, I've enjoyed this. I told you before, the presentation of this book is amazing. Do you, by the way, do you have till... I forget what, do you have 30 more minutes? Yeah. Are you good? Okay, cool. Um, this book not only is gorgeous, but it's about one of my favorite subjects right now. Uh, mushrooms are of incredible interest to me. So I've started reading a lot of books on mushrooms. Your, your book goes over medicinal mushrooms. So you talk about the overview of herbs and mushrooms and um, and I want to talk a little bit about that, but given that we've only got 30 minutes, I really want to dive into the visionary aspects of mushrooms. And could you set us up broadly about mushrooms in general as agents of healing and then get into why visionary mushrooms or our uh, entheogenic or psychedelic mushrooms are of such importance? Yes. Well, in a nutshell, as far as overall mushrooms, why are they, why can they be transformative? Why are they why can they contribute so much to our personal and planetary health? Um, first of all, they're just so packed with nutrition. Again, they're the highest fiber food, so you're going to get a tremendous amount of fiber, which is really, really key to health uh, for many reasons. Uh, and number two, they're loaded with trace minerals like iron and copper and zinc, and, and, and so they're, they're an amazing source of minerals. Uh, they're a good source of B vitamins and and other vitamins, uh, even vitamin D. Uh, if they're exposed to sun, they can produce their own vitamin D. So we, if we're eating mm. shiitake, for instance, we can get some vitamin D from that. Uh, and, and they're also very high in very high, in high quality and, and usable, biologically usable protein. So it's a fantastic protein source. You know, some uh, oyster mushrooms especially are very easy to digest. And they're up to one third 
usable and and uh, protein with all the the essential amino acids. So they're an amazing source of of high quality protein uh, and some fatty acids, though they're low fat in general, low cholesterol. Uh, and then finally, they have these amazing cell wall polymers called uh, glucans. They're, they're uh, beta glucans are the most discussed and studied, but beta glucans are are basically uh, glucose molecules that, that are attached end to end in a certain way so that we can't digest them in the upper GI tract. Starch is, is also a glucose polymer, a glucan, but we, they're put together in a way that we can cut those glucose molecules off and, and use the energy in our upper GI tract. Uh, but, but beta glucans are put together so that it's like insoluble fiber <coughs> and soluble fiber in mushrooms and they go down in our gut they're not broken down much. And when they get down there, then bacteria feed on that and it encourages complexity and it encourages uh, diversity. Uh, so, and they, it turns out that, that these beta glucans that we have ancient receptors all along our upper gut, uh, gut are, uh, which are called pyrus patches. There are receptor sites there for fungi, all fungi have these beta glucans. 1316 uh, beta-glucan. And, and that, so as soon, as soon as our body um, detects these beta-glucans, they're taken up uh, in special areas called M cells. So they're taken up and then they're immediately gobbled up by macrophages, our big cell eaters at one of our immune cells, broken down and then activated and then sent out to other immune cells to, that activate those then. So there's this really, really amazing uh, circuitry, hmm. if you will, in our body that, that detects those beta-glucans from fungus because it's fungus. And, and so we, over the, over the millions of years of our evolution, we've had to, to detect fungus because they're, they're potential pathogens. They're potential pathogens that could feed on us. So uh, we've had to learn to detect them. And even nowadays, if we're eating shiitake, which is not at all pathogenic, very safe and very healthy to eat, uh, it can still activate all of these immune uh, processes, which lead to, to stronger and more, more um, resilient and also more active uh, T-cell, uh, T-cells, which, which can, are memory, they're memory cells. That, that's one thing that when we're infected with Omicron, for instance, mm. we, have, we have antibodies, which only last for say six months or a year but we also have T cells. And there's a lot of research on T cells showing that our T cell help, T helper cells and other T memory cells are activated when we're infected. And those last a long time. So we, we get long lasting, maybe up to years, maybe even a lifetime of, of a memory uh, against these specific pathogens and viruses. So uh, using mushrooms regularly can keep, help keep our T cells and, and our, our uh, innate immunity ready at, at the ready. And, and so it can help promote balance and it can help promote strength and, and can help promote vigilance against pathogens while we're using them regularly. And there is so much clinical research and, and in vivo and in vitro laboratory research on, on this all around the world that really has pointed out that beta-glucans from fungi have all of these uh, anti-inflammatory, 
immune regulating properties that are so beneficial to our health. And, and that's why they become such a, a popular dietary supplement now because uh, of immune regulation, immune strengthening properties that they have, and especially when used regularly. Now, there, there are two ways to, one more little minor point, that, or actually it's a very important point. <laughs> there are two types of products out there <clears throat> that you'll find. You'll find, you'll find whole mushrooms that are grown, uh, and some of it is mycelium that's grown on different grains like brown rice. Uh, and there's also then if you wait long enough, then they produce fruiting bodies, which are the actual mushrooms. So there's a big discussion out there in the marketplace. Do you want fruiting body? Do you want mycelium? Uh, do you want just an extract that takes the triterpenes mm -hmm. and beta-glucans out of, uh, out of the matrix of the mushroom and throws the rest of the mushroom away? Do you want that? But it concentrates the triterpenes and other compounds that we know have anti-inflammatory effects. What's the best product to get out there? My, what I, my research and lab clinical experience shows me that it's really important to get the whole mushroom and to get a bag of powder. And if you get a bag of powder, say eight ounce bag of powder, it's going to be about the same price as if you're taking an extract out of the mushroom and concentrating it and throwing the fiber away. You're getting so much more benefit out of the whole mushroom. Mm -hmm. and but, so that's one aspect. The mycelium isn't any better or worse than the, than the mushroom fruiting bodies themselves, the mushrooms, but you wanna make sure to get plenty of fungal biomass. And if you grow mycelium on grains like brown rice, and it's only allowed to culture in the brown rice for say a week or two, and then, you wanna, and then they harvest it and, and cook it and dry it and powder it and put it into capsules or a bag, that's not going to be much good because you're going to get so much starch from the brown rice. So you want to make sure to, to go with a company that is going to let them culture for a long time, let's say even up to a month and a half, two months, and they consume almost all of the brown rice and produce a lot of mycelium and then start producing fruiting bodies. That's the ideal circumstance. And I mm. point this out strongly in my book. I, I, I discuss that in detail. So, my, and then uh, again, you know, there's so many benefits to the mushrooms, but nutrition, fiber, um, protein. And, and the one big thing that I, I like to point out so strongly is that it's mushrooms are adding a lot of mushrooms to the diet and a mushroom powder in your soups, stir fries, wherever is going to be such a, a good um, uh, step to greater health because it's a way of transitioning from a, an animal-based diet that because you're getting a kind of a texture, like if you cook lion's mane and slice it and right. kind of grill, grill it, it kind of ha tastes, has a texture like meat. Yeah, and it has a lot of the same shiitake, lion's mane, uh, oyster mushrooms. They have a lot of the same properties as meat, high protein, uh, except the fat and except that animal products have zero fiber, whereas mushrooms are the highest fiber food. So it's a great way to transition uh, to a whole foods, plant-based diet uh, and still get many of the benefits of the meat and also gain many of the benefits from a plant-based diet. So the things that really blow my mind about mushrooms are that I've learned recently is, that, is how ubiquitous 
spores are and mycelium is everywhere mm-hmm. like it, it's ever like that blows my mind and then <coughs> the second thing is the neurogenerative piece that there's you're, you're like i i guess it just if people knew this one of my favorite documentaries in the world is fantastic fungi and it blew my mind when that came out and i wish more people watched it but right it's good those those aspects of mushrooms are pretty magical like all of them it it mushrooms seem to be magical then there's this subjective experiential aspect of psilocybin that it has been called magic and magic mushrooms you offer an in a solid amount of research i could read it i'll include the links at the bottom but we're talking about studies that involve psilocybin yield um reductions in in depression symptoms reduction in addiction reduction in anxiety reduction in post-traumatic stress symptoms yeah they involve greater senses of satisfaction uh, uh, less anxiety about death um, people being able to attend to uh, tasks in their life that they hadn't realized existed before or develop the courage to do so. We're talking about radical shifts by taking a, a, a mushroom. So that's right. from your biologists <laughs> and your, your biological and meditative mind, what is up with that? Well, they've been used for a long time. We know that I go through the history a little bit in my book, but yeah, but uh, it was known in the 1500s by the Spaniards that came over to South America that that uh, people, the, the people, the indigenous people there were using magical mushrooms or visionary mushrooms, hallucinogenic mushrooms for ritual, for, uh, for healing, uh, spiritual healing, of course, and for other purposes, uh, just for pleasure, even I think. I'm sure mm-hmm. they were using them just for sheer pleasure uh, to create a happy mood. Uh, and so now, uh, in the in the 1950s, uh, that was that was brought to the wider world's attention through the work of Gordon Wasson and a few other people, uh, c- certainly uh, certainly Hoffman, mm-hmm. certainly Albert Hoffman. So Albert, I would say Albert Hoffman, and and uh, you know was, was very instrumental because he was the first one to to isolate the alkaloids, the active alkaloids. And, and bring it down to Maria Sabina, where they all ate it uh, together, Hoffman and, and another person, they, they all ate the, the tablets of pure psilocybin. And he asked Maria Sabina, is this, is this what you're feeling when you eat the mushrooms? And she said, no, I don't feel anything. So then they ate another round of, of tablets and, and all of a sudden it started to come on. And she said, yes, yes, it's very powerful. This is what I feel. And it's because the, the psilocybin wasn't nearly as quickly absorbed in the, in the, in the purified form mm-hmm. than in the mushroom. It was much faster absorbed in the mushroom. So they took a double dose and then they, they really got the trip of their lives. But this is when it first came to our attention. Well, that's, that's another story. That's a long story. But, but uh, so it's been around and, and other visionary, um, certainly herbs have been used for even longer than mushrooms, but probably mushrooms, hallucinogenic mushrooms have been used for maybe a couple thousand years. We don't know, or longer even. Certainly it would get your attention if you ate ate a a few psilocybin mushrooms, it's going to get your attention. And there's no doubt about what you're feeling. Uh, 
Um, but now, and then in the 1950s, uh, so it started to spread, the word started to spread, and then many scientists started to get onto it and become interested in it. And then throughout the 60s and early 70s, there was a lot of research being conducted on LSD and, and uh, psilocybin mushrooms, many, many small clinical trials, clinical reports uh, showing the benefits. Uh, and then in the late 70s, all the, all the uh, research licenses were pulled uh, and it was shut down. Uh, may, partly, you know, Michael Pollan makes the, the uh, point that, that it was Timothy Leary, you know, just, just mm -hmm. yeah, the whipping, whipping everybody up into tune in and drop out. The static you know? frenzy. Yeah, so, so it, was, it just got out of hand mm -hmm. and we weren't ready for it. People didn't know, know what to make of it or how to use it. And we, we had no, like unlike um, a tradition like in South America where, where the use of them were handed on from generation to generation, we had nothing. All of a sudden they just hit the scene and people were, were downing LSD and, and psychedelic mushrooms with no training no knowledge about what, what they might find in there, which is, you know, a Pandora's box, as we well know, all that early childhood trauma is down there. And suddenly you're looking at it face to face. And of course, there's going to be a lot of, there's going to be a lot of uh, pushback uh, from the, from the authorities too, because people seem to be out of control in a way, but then, you know, people used it underground. There were lots of, um, lots of facilitators we could call them guides or facilitators mm -hmm. there are a lot of people working underground all the way from the 1970s many many uh psychologists and psychiatrists using them even uh you know basically underground behind the scenes for for um, what 20 30 years and then now it's all out in the open it's all coming out in the open and and the unfortunate part of it is the same as cannabis is that now it's a financial gold rush. Right. You know, so many companies are wanting to cash in on it. You're always going to find that in human nature. But on the other side, there are so many people now microdosing and 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 taking macrodoses and really opening up. And and now with more preparation, we've had more, we have more understanding about inner psychology. Gabor Mate has been out there since the '80s doing his work, uh, and and. You know, there are so many counselors and now counseling is much more widespread, I'd say. Mm -hmm. Going to counselors and realizing that that getting counseling and finding um, finding counseling can help, can be helpful, has really come come out of the closet now and is out. And many in, in many most cities, there are many counselors available and psychiatrists and psychologists are available and psychotherapists and and they're being. Uh, supported there and 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 so and now psychedelic mushrooms have come into the the, the question the picture because uh, of so much depression anxiety and other modern uh, modern angst out there as we know it's it's widespread the numbers of how many people are depressed or anxious are are astronomical and the amount of prescription prescriptions that are being written uh, written for SSRIs and Benzos are are also astronomical, and just just the general dissatisfaction with the results that people are getting with benzos, benzodiazepines, and SSRIs, and and also when you really look into the studies behind 
the, the treatment efficacy for NSAFD for benzodiazepines and SSRIs, we're finding that there is publication bias. There's a lot going on behind the scenes to push mm. SSRIs when in fact the utility of them <clears throat> is, is minimal. Oftentimes you have to keep switching around. It, it has, they have major side effects such as uh, you know, shutting down the libido. Yeah. Uh, I've seen side effects like stops saliva from flowing and people mm-hmm. get a lot of tooth decay. And I mean, there are many side effects of these things. Also, it kind of shuts you down emotionally and, and sedates you in many ways so that you can't feel joy. Uh, you, you don't feel an- anxious, but you can't feel joy either. Uh, maybe you just don't feel that your mood swings have been damped down. In other words, alcohol does exactly the same thing. It just basically shuts us down mm. emotionally uh, with chronic use. Uh, but now psilocybin comes on the scene. And uh, I think more and more people are interested in, in going inside, but they don't know how to go about it. And, and, and they don't. And, and also, it seems daunting to have to do a 10 year meditation program <laughs> to get down in there and, and get in touch with, with that trauma and to open it up. And, and it, you know, it's a meditation is 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 essential along with in my opinion along with psilocybin and hallucinogenic therapy it's essential uh to to also follow follow the the sessions up with meditation mm. because and so what i've learned I'll, I'll cut to the chase uh with with so many decades myself of using psilocybin is that they are amazing agents of transformation uh and 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 I see very few downsides of uh, personally of psilocybin use. I see very few downsides. Yes, uh, people that are already have major psychological problems, uh, even psychosis, uh, and and really strong uh, problem you know problems going on in their life. Uh, you you must. I, I strongly recommend that you go for. A facilitator. Mm-hmm. Uh, unfortunately, it's uh, and and personally, my, I have a practice online now. But in my practice, I have so many people quite saying, "How can I get psilocybin? How can I, how can I find a, a a guide or a facilitator?" And there just aren't enough to go around now. Right. And and there, of course, there are many training programs going on, but the training programs still can only only train what the California School of Integral Studies mm-hmm, mm-hmm. I mean their their process their program is very popular and, and very good but it's very expensive and they can only train so many people at once so the need is very great right now for facilitators and and for growers and and figuring out the legality of growing and actually having products out there I mean I wish I could wish I could just grow openly. And as I give it away, I like giving it away to people because uh, as a, as a microdose, not as a macrodose. So mm-hmm. I'm more cautious about that. But again, I really strongly recommend that you work with a facilitator. If you have, if you do have, uh, you know, depression, anxiety, other psychological uh, issues going on, I re- highly recommend using a facilitator. And trying to find one, unfortunately, again, there isn't enough to go around. But, but uh, they. So my bottom line is they're they're amazing agents for change, and they can really put you in touch because they dissolve the default mode network, mode network uh, our sense of ego, our sense of self, 
which basically, and again, and this is Gabor Mate speaking, but it's amazing to think that our ego is basically constructed from an early age to protect ourselves against the world. Uh, and when you think of the ego in that, in that fashion, it, fine, it protects us. It allows us to, to move ahead with our life uh, and protect us from all this input that's coming in everywhere, negative and positive. Uh, and and uh, so it may be necessary, but but when you look at it in that light, it all <clears throat> excuse me it all, it also filters out a lot of things and suppresses a lot of things that that don't allow us to reach our full potential and our fur and our and our full joy in life, uh, and and just break out in, into our creative potential uh, and and joy. Uh, in life, it, it, it holds us back tremendously. And, mm -hmm. and so psilocybin, a psilocybin session or a series of sessions along with, it's very important to have follow-up, to have integration. It's very important. That's, that's the most important part of the session is really making sense of what we feel when we take a major psilocybin journey, which might be three grams, it might be four or five grams of dried mushroom or even up to five grams for some people. Uh, and a heroic dose might even be higher than that, but I don't recommend that unless you really know what you're doing and you have experience and you're under a guide. Mm -hmm. And ayahuasca Absolutely. falls in this same camp. Uh, in my little community here, I have a, and there's an ayahuascaro available in my little community up here in the Sierra foothills. So that's also getting to be quite, quite open. And I think it's actually more, maybe more widely available and, and out, out there because uh, it's not quite so stigmatized maybe as LSD or Well, I'm, I'm aware of our time and I want to be able to close the loop on a couple of these. Uh, well, microdosing we should talk about. Well, and primarily, what are your recommendations? Because I know a lot of people are out there saying, what do I need to know? Many people are still scared because of the... <laughs> The effort that was, you know, launched in order to suppress it. Yeah, totally suppress it. That's that's a direct way of saying it. Yes. So, will you leave us with some of those thoughts? I wanna I wanna know. I'm curious about what are your recommendations for people, and also the one thing back from COVID is that for people that get COVID, so to speak, what are your treatment recommendations for uh, from an herbal perspective? If you could get to those two things before we finish. Right. Uh, well, to continue on and but psilocybin, uh, I, I recommend you know by yourself if you don't have the the um, the benefit of having a trained uh, facilitator, then I recommend starting with with microdosing, and that's the easiest way to start. And my uh, microdosing basically, if you can get dried mushrooms, dried mushrooms are always the way to go over powder or over a liquid a tincture or extract. Yes, a liquid tincture or extract can be okay, or, or powders, but as soon as you powder the mushroom, as soon as you make a liquid extract like a tincture, it is going to make the alkaloids less stable. And the alkaloids are not very stable. So keep the mushroom in its whole form is the best. Keep the whole, keep the whole mushroom in, in its whole form and only uh, powder it if you're gonna take it. But even better than that is just take a piece of the cap and weigh it, get a jeweler scale and weigh out the dose. The best dose to start out with is about 300 to 500 milligrams is the best dose to start with, in my opinion. Mm 
So just get a jeweler scale, take a piece of the cap or stem, stems a little more potent than the cap, put that onto the scale and weigh it and, and just start with three to 500 milligrams. Uh, you know, it doesn't really matter if it's around uh, a meal time or not. They're, they're pretty impervious to that. It takes longer for it to come on if you, if you take it after eating than if you take it on an empty stomach, it comes on a lot faster. Uh, the way to do it is to take the dried, um, and by the way, I'm not recommending that you do it. Uh, I, I'm going to have a disclosure, disclosure yes. here. Uh, I, what I'm saying, I'm just giving you information about how it, how best to do it if you were to choose that, but I'm not, I'm not pushing it or recommending it in any way. I, I'm just giving you my experience. Uh, so what I, what I would do is take a piece of the cap and weigh it, say, uh, start, if you're a big person, start with 500 milligrams, take that piece and put it in your mouth and resalt and kind of rehydrate it with your saliva, keep it in there and just kind of move it around your mouth and let it soak up the saliva and get soft. And once it's soft, then you can kind of break it up with your teeth a bit and then swallow it. And, and that's really the fastest way. It should take about 20 minutes to a half an hour before you start feeling it. A liquid's going to be a little bit faster. Uh, that's another story, but I still recommend just the whole mushroom because you know what you're getting at that point. You know, a white powder you don't, or a capsule or a powder, you don't know what you're getting. So it's better to use the whole mushroom. And then if you go up from there in a microdose, you can go up to six, seven, eight, nine hundred milligrams, even a gram. A gram is called a museum dose, meaning that you can take a gram of the mushroom and you can still function. You can still go to the museum or a concert and you can really enjoy it, really connect, uh, really get out of your head and really just uh, just have a whole whole experience of the music inside your body and the joy of it. Uh, and, and you can still deal, you can still deal with, with normal reality. Be careful about driving though. If you, if you've taken a gram, mm -hmm. it can be, it can be somewhat disorienting and you can feel dizzy and a little disoriented if you're taking a gram. Now, once you go up above that to a gram and a half, two grams, three grams, then you're better off. That's really important. Set and setting is talked about over and over again. The set meaning your mindset when you take it better to be taking it on with a good mindset rather than, and gratitude rather than, oh God, I'm feeling so terrible. I wonder if this is going to help me. Uh, you're, you're better off meditating or getting to a place where you're feeling pretty good before taking a major journey. Uh, that's my recommendation. Don't, don't use it for trying to, to heal depression or something like that. Work with a psychotherapist and then, or a guide and then get to a place where you're feeling really positive about the experience. That's the set. And then the setting, you know, I always like going out in the woods personally and being in nature, not around a lot of people. I mean, you could maybe, you can take 500 milligrams and go to a concert and be around a lot of people. But when you get up into the two or three, four gram dose, you're really better off uh, being away from people and being mm -hmm. with a close friend that's holding space for you. Or, uh, and so if you can't find a, you can't find a, a guide or, or a facilitator, get a close friend that you feel really comfortable with to hold space for you when you're, when you're taking two or three or four grams, that's going to be a major journey. And it's going to really, it, it could very well be that it's going to challenge you. It could be challenging. Uh, it, you could, could have fear coming up. You could have panic even coming up in the higher, very higher doses, probably not with a gram or below. 
and 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 things early things could come up you could be in touch with them and and it can be difficult to deal with but it's the difficulty that really is is the transformative part so i i encourage a person if they are taking a higher dose to really know that 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 is an important part of the journey the difficulty and dealing and facing these issues early early trauma the the anger with your parent or whatever it is facing that and going into it that that's what psilocybin does it opens everything up and it allows you to get in touch with it and it can also you can with a higher doses you can have a spiritual experience where you feel uh, connected to to everything that is you feel you don't feel like this tiny little bag of inside your skin anymore me 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 you you really it really opens you up to a much greater uh, consciousness and you feel a part of everything you feel a part of of all that is and it's just such an incredible spiritual feeling that some people in these clinical trials say that this is the most profound spiritual experience i've ever had in my entire life and it mm -hmm. lasts the feeling of awe and the feeling of being connected to something greater than than our puny puny ego is really can be really life-changing and really shifting in our consciousness and it lasts it's it has shown that it can last for a year or two years just even one or two sessions can last so it's very profound it's very uh, transformative uh, it's incredible but now my caveat it's not going to heal in and of itself you could take a dozen sessions or a hundred sessions and still you're not going to get to the place where you feel completely uh, beaut beautiful inside your skin and you, you, you feel you, you have a very calm, equanimous feeling most of the time. Your mind is not bothering you. You feel, you feel very relaxed and very, very wonderful inside your body and connected to other people and with no worry and no concerns. That's a place that takes work to get to, but this okay. can open everything. It can open the avenue up for you to take your journey on discovery and, and to get to that place of feeling really equanimous most of the time. Uh, and, and, and what, so that's why, again, when you have the experience, it's very important to integrate that into your life. So integration is so important. And then practice, practice, practice what you've learned and the insights that you have. That, and meditation is the best way to do that, to sit with that insight that you got that was so profound that I, oh, I, I'm part of something much greater. Uh, mm -hmm. That's something to sit with and really ponder and slow down, slow down and sit with that. And then, and then work with a guide, work with a, a, a psychotherapist to really help integrate those, in, those powerful insights into your life that, that can be so transformative. And, and, and then back to microdosing, I think microdosing- Well, I've got, Chris, I've got to interrupt. I'm sorry, because I, I literally have a patient in about- Oh, okay, sorry. 45 seconds. I would love to go off on that. But I would you mind emailing me a treatment protocol? Uh, uh, this gets dicey, but what you'd recommend for somebody, I want to, that COVID question about how we treat it. I'm, I'm right. curious what kind of herbs are valuable for that process. So if you email that to me, but I do need to go, unfortunately, because I get the. Well, well, I can show you. I, I can I can send you a link to my PowerPoint presentation and talk 
that, that goes over everything about that, what, what you're That's asking about. There will be a link below for those that are watching or listening. Click below on this link, and I'll take you to Chris's website. By the way, his website is full of uh, wonderful things to check out. Check it out at Christopher Hobbs. Is it .com? Uh, and I'll, again, I'll have links below. Um, okay. But Chris, thank you so much for your time today. Uh, yeah, we had a wine-ranging talk. That's for holy sure. Holy moly. No I know. Barred, right? <laughs> <laughs> I'm I'm grateful, man. Thank you, and I'll okay. uh, I'll follow you, follow up with you soon. But I'm I'm eager to go back through and edit this, and get it out. Okay, great. Thanks, John. Thank you. Oh,